Please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear what you would have us hear. Open our minds to know what you would have us know. Open our hearts to feel what you would have us feel. And set our souls on fire with your word. Amen. One of my very favorite things to do when I'm reading the gospel stories is to put myself right in there. I want to be one of the characters. Now maybe it's the filmmaker in me. I'm a storyteller. It comes alive when I'm one of them. But I love imagining, encountering Jesus, reacting to Jesus. And today we have one of a set of parables that Jesus is telling in the temple. It's the day after he's ridden into Jerusalem, triumphant. People are throwing cloaks down. I can imagine I'm throwing my cloak. I'm waving my hosannas. I'm, maybe I'm a disciple. I'm not in the crowd, and I'm thinking, wow, I bet on the right horse. <laughs> this guy, they're really saying he's the one who came in the name of the Lord. But this is the next day. Jesus is in the temple. He's telling parables to the priests and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were part of temple leadership in charge of leading people in the ways of God. And in the Gospels, the Pharisees are always the bad guys. They're the religious ones standing in Jesus' way. They're the active resistance. They're launching theological challenges, plotting his downfall. And in this parable, the the Pharisees discover Jesus is comparing them to terrible tenants. So what's the choice? Pharisee, terrible tenant, one and the same. I don't want to be a Pharisee. But here, the only actor in this is the Pharisee, the slaves who get killed, the tenants Pharisee, slaves who get killed, or God. And somehow playing God is a little too much. This is a parable about tenants who have a very generous landlord who's blessed them with vineyards to tend and to nurture. But these tenants at the end of the growing season deliberately kill off every set of people that the landlord sends to collect the fruits of the harvest, including the landlord's son. I don't want to be that Pharisee. I don't want to be that tenant murdering because I'm greedy, because I want what came of the blessings I was given just for me. I don't want to be the one that's pridefully asserting, I don't need God. I'm going to kill off God's messengers. (laughs) Identifying with a Pharisee just does not sit right. It reminds me of how it feels during Holy Week, right before Easter, when a lot of our churches will dramatize Jesus' trial and crucifixion. There'll be someone who's a narrator, someone who's Pontius Pilate, Jesus, and then we as the congregation, we get two lines. And I dread these lines every year because it's crucify him. Crucify him. That's not who I want to be in scripture, thank you very much. But I don't think Matthew included these parables so that we could sit back and go, yeah, that's those awful Pharisees. I think this is a tough invitation for us as people of God to
to look at our own stewardship of God's blessings. How are we tending our vineyard? How are we tending our community, our fellow human beings? Are we nurturing holy fruit for the kingdom of God? Are we nurturing fruit in deeds of justice, fruit of acts of loving kindness? Yesterday morning, just after sunrise, I got my first glimpse of the downtown Phoenix vineyard. I walked three blocks from my hotel to coffee, and I encountered three other early risers. But each time I said hello, my heart sank a little bit further, one hello at a time, because each one of the people I encountered was exhibiting behaviors that are consistent with having severe mental illness, consistent with schizophrenia. Each looked like they'd spent the night outdoors. Now, I'm not a doctor, and any actual walk-by or drive-by diagnosis is wildly inappropriate, but I do have a brother who has schizophrenia, and he's been battling it for 20 years. And I, my family, we've all developed these antennae that are tuned in to noticing indicators of paranoia, of delusion, of terror, indicators of cognitive and behavioral changes that come with the disease. And the harsh reality is in this vineyard of Phoenix, in this vineyard of the United States, in the vineyard of the world that God has entrusted to us, we have an enormous population of people who are suffering from mental illness be it the extreme forms, the extremely debilitating forms like schizophrenia, and other forms, be it OCD, depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, and a shockingly huge number, no matter where you are on the spectrum of illnesses, shockingly huge percentage don't have access to adequate care. If my grandmother with dementia or Alzheimer's were to wander out onto the street, delusional, disoriented, behaving weirdly, the police would pick her up and take her to some sort of treatment facility, a hospital perhaps. But if my brother with schizophrenia were to wander out and exhibit the exact same behaviors, delusional, behaving weirdly, the police would take him to jail. There are no psych beds. They're getting fewer and fewer. Both are debilitating brain diseases. Yet one illness, when symptoms erupt, you get treatment. Another, there's no room at the inn. Why in our vineyard is it okay to cordon off this whole area that we don't want to care for? The truth is one in four of us is personally impacted by mental illness. Depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar, borderline. It could be our own illness, or it could be that of a loved one. And some of us, like me, are double winners. We have family members, my brother with schizophrenia, and I've been in treatment for depression since college. Another way to think of it is to look at the people in your pew. And if you yourself are not carrying a diagnosis, just look at, you know, the three people around you, and statistically, one of the four of you is dealing firsthand with some form of mental illness. These are hidden diseases. And are these diseases that we bring to church? 
When Jesus finishes telling the Pharisees about the tenants killing the people the landlord sent to collect that harvest, Jesus asks them, so what should the landlord do with these tenants? And Pharisees, right away, oh, kill them, get rid of them, get new tenants. The Pharisees knew they're doing something wrong. They knew something wasn't right. They convicted themselves. And that, for me, is what's so hard about entering the story of the tenants, because we really do need to convict ourselves on how we are treating people who have mental illness. We know in our hearts we're sidestepping. I know I just said hello, and I don't know if these guys, any of the three of them, had breakfast. I just walked on. The consequences of not providing treatment are devastating. The percentage of people with severe mental illness who live on the streets, like the people I think I I believe were ill that I encountered, that varies community by community. Some, it's as low as 20%. On the high end, where I am in Los Angeles, right by the beach, we're at over 60%. There's cities in the nation that will give people a one-way bus ticket when they get out of the hospital to California. And I don't know if you guys are a destination as well. Utah is notorious for discharging patients from psych hospitals and giving them one-way tickets to sunny cities. Jails and prisons now provide more around-the-clock care for people with severe mental illnesses. They have more beds than all the hospitals in the U.S., psych hospitals in the U.S. combined. And the stat that just breaks my heart and I keep wishing would change is that for the past 10 years and counting, the largest psychiatric treatment facility in the nation is the jail in my home city, L.A. County Jail, Twin Towers. So how do we nurture these vineyards? These are huge problems. This is a problem of mental health care, of cultural stigma, of poverty, of homelessness, of shame. I mean, huge. Change doesn't happen overnight. Systemic problems aren't overhauled with a quick prayer, a quick meal. Jesus tells the Pharisees that the stone that the builders rejected, the holiness from God that was rejected, that's the stone we need to cling to. That becomes the cornerstone upon which we build or we stumble. If we see it, we can build on it. In the big picture, Christianity has stumbled with mental illness. Not all of our churches are bringing it to light as you are at the cathedral and have been for many years. In a study released last week of Protestant churches, two-thirds of pastors reported that they had rarely or never spoken of mental illness in the pulpit or in any congregational classes or large gatherings. 66%, two-thirds. This is something that's affecting one-quarter of the population. My church, I, my home church, we organized a walkathon team for the National Alliance on Mental Illness annual walk, as you, the cathedral, do every year. And I don't know what your experience has been, but the first year we walked, we got out there all gung-ho. 
And we discovered we were the only community of faith. 3,000 walkers. There wasn't one other church, not one synagogue, not one prayer group, nothing. It was just us. And then we started looking like, where are the collars? I wasn't ordained, so I wasn't sporting one yet. There were no collars. For five years, our team walked. We never once saw ordained clergy of any stripe at a walk. What's going on here? Would you imagine an AIDS walk, a gay pride walk, a breast cancer walk without any clergy? It just wouldn't happen. What are we doing with our vineyard? Our experience our first year at that walk was heartbreaking in another front. Because we stood there, we, we had this way too huge banner, and it was too hard to cut off the people walking to turn to get into the flow. So we just stood there with our, you know, church banner, and people would walk by, and pretty soon some of the group homes started applauding us. Like, good for you for figuring out to show up. I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't right. Then we had people starting to come up to us in tears. I'm so glad you're here. My pastor told me I was sick because I was sinful. Other people. I was told I'm not getting better because I hadn't prayed enough. Do you think I can pray my illness away? Other people told us of being demon-possessed, that they, were, they had experienced exorcisms at their churches. And when those exorcisms didn't work, because guess what? An exorcism is not going to change your brain. You're ill. An exorcism is not going to change epilepsy. It's not going to change breast cancer. These people were kicked out of their parishes. So we're seeing this huge bunch of people terribly damaged by messages Christianity has proclaimed. And I like to think, oh, that was way back then. You know, these are maybe older adults. Maybe that happened when they were little. But last night we were screening a film on activism about mental health that I made. And somebody came up afterwards and said, bloody blood church nearby, uh, they, they preached recently that it is demon possession. Mental illness is not caused by demons. The same study about the pathetic number of pastors preaching or churches talking about mental health also found that 50% of Protestant pastors surveyed questioned whether or not salvation was even possible for people with severe mental illness. Worse, and I'm really being Debbie Downer here, but there is a good part. (laughs) We'll get to Jesus. (laughs) Worse, 40% of people who are ill don't, in these congregations, do not think they're worthy of salvation. Boy, this is the opposite of what Christ preaches. We are all children of God. We are all worthy of salvation. And as a Christian community, we can make an enormous change by just simply proclaiming the love of Christ for everyone, regardless of diagnosis. Let's remove the cordons from those parts of our vineyard that are blocked off. Let's help remove the cordons around parts of other people's vineyards around us that are blocked off. Let's let the love of Christ shine in. This cathedral community has been inspiring for me, learning of how you have taken the lead in proclaiming the love of God for the LGBT community, championing issues of the working poor. You know how to be bold locally, 
regionally, nationally. Well, I challenge you. You have a remarkable opportunity to take leadership in advocacy on behalf of those with mental illness. The Episcopal Church has not found a national voice. There is no one strong voice. There are little squeaky ones, you know, mine, some others. But there's no one big strong voice yet. Christianity hasn't found a big voice. It's just starting the survey, just a beginning, and it's a survey prompted by a megachurch's pastor whose son committed suicide, and his eyes opened. So instead of residing in the enormity of the overwhelm of dealing with this big issue, let's set our eyes on Christ, the cornerstone. We are a resurrection faith. We know that new life can happen, and we also know change doesn't happen overnight. We're all the body of Christ. We each have a gift to bear, and perhaps a place to start is right here in our community, right here maybe within the cathedral. Are you all doing everything you can to make this a safe place for someone to be able to say in a prayer meeting, I have bipolar disorder, I'm having a hard time? as safe as it would be to say, you know, I broke my leg, I'm having a hard time. Is this a stigma-free community? Are we telling people, gee, what happened when you grew up? Maybe that's why you're ill. Are we blaming parents for causing it? Are we blaming others? Or are we acknowledging these are illnesses, they impact our personalities, they happen, there is treatment. And for those of us who do have illnesses, are we coming out? Are we even telling our neighbors and our pews and our friends in various small groups that we have an illness or that a loved one has an illness? Christ calls us to witness, and part of that witness is not like, hey, let me just share the good news. It's sharing the fullness of our humanity. Are we letting people know when we are in crisis? And for those of us not in crisis, are we offering to visit and pray with one another? When my brother first uh, was hospitalized near me, he wanted my priest to come and pray with him. And when I went to the priest to ask him, would you go visit John? He's like, well, what would I say? Like, well, what would you say to someone who'd had a heart attack? (laughs) What would you say to somebody who's having surgery? He just wants a prayer. There used to be psych hospitals that he's been in where chaplains were not allowed on the psych unit, on the locked unit. And I got on my high horse because I thought that was those evil nurse managers blocking the chaplains and the holy ones from coming in. But oh no, it was the holy ones, the chaplain's office, that didn't want to go into the locked units. That's changed. In almost every hospital now, chaplains are allowed and encouraged to go into psych units. People with mental illness are not being deprived of spiritual care. That's awesome. So are we doing that here in the community? Are we offering pastoral care to one another in the same way we would for any other illness? At home, my mother had recently had breast cancer, and her church turned her living room into like a floral shop. There were so many bouquets. They had the most amazing website organization for meals delivered, too many meals delivered, where we were giving them on to other people. But a year before, when my brother was suicidal, and he went to the hospital to try and get admitted, needed care, 
at risk of death. There were no beds, so he was sent home to my mother, 72 years old, who's now having to turn her house into a 24-7 suicide watch unit. She didn't get any casseroles. She didn't get any flowers. There's no support from anyone but immediate family and some of the other families in the mental health network that we know. But the church, not there. And it's not like we're not an out family. We made a film on my brother's illness. It was on freaking HBO. Um, But it just, we don't make those connections. There's something about mental illness. It's like, ooh, well, that's over there. Let's bring it back in. It's in our vineyard. Let's care for it. In Christ, we have the long view. We know that change happens, radical change happens, and the church has led the way on so many fronts. We are supposed to do the footwork in our vineyard with our eyes on Christ, creating the fruit for God, doing deeds of justice, and remembering that's for the mentally ill too, doing acts of loving kindness for everyone. With Christ, we have regular food for the journey. We come here every week for renewal. We take Christ into ourselves with bread and wine, and we go and give Christ out to the world that we serve. So let us go forth. Let us tend the vineyards of our lives. And let's follow the prayer of the psalmist who asks God to look down from heaven and behold and tend this vine and preserve the preciousness of what God planted. Amen.